Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. On today's episode, you'll hear part one of my interview with Courtney Cook. Courtney is an artist, writer, and mental health advocate. This year, she released her debut graphic memoir titled The Way She Feels, My Life on the Borderline in Pictures and Pieces. Courtney's book provides a candid and brave look at her life and struggles with BPD, depression, anxiety, and OCD through a combination of her colorful and unique artwork and personal essays. I loved my conversation with Courtney. We talked for I think two and a half hours. So this is going to be a multi-episode interview. Nothing is off the table in our discussions. I want to let you know that we cover some triggering topics like self-harm, skin picking, suicidal ideation, and hospitalizations. So if these subjects are too heavy for you right now, and you don't have support systems in place and you feel like it's unsafe for you to listen to triggering material, I highly recommend that you skip these interview episodes. I'd also like to address the topic of privilege head on. I realize that many of my listeners may not have the familial or financial support that Courtney had access to growing up. Far too many of you listening will tune into this episode not having access to healthcare at all. I am keenly aware of this, and I want to do everything I can in my power to continue to be an advocate to make sure that one day that is not the case. But I believe in sharing all experiences and perspectives, and I believe that everyone who struggles with their mental health will be able to come away feeling less alone and supported by hearing Courtney's story and the way she discusses her mental health. In this first half of our interview, we talk about Courtney's experience in residential treatment in Utah when she was just 13 years old, how she grew up feeling like a turtle without a shell, feeling like a lost cause, and the trials and tribulations of the mental health system that she's experienced as she's grown up. The more people I sit down with and have conversations about BPD and mental illness, I'm overwhelmed by the feeling that we go through such similar experiences, even though our backgrounds and the way we were raised are so very different. So without further ado, if you are ready to sit down and get real, brew yourself up a cup of BPD tea, and let's listen to Courtney's story. You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I 
spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. All right, so welcome everyone to my interview with Courtney, author of The Way She Feels, and I just want to give Courtney the floor to introduce herself and give us your elevator pitch of yourself. Okay, my name is Courtney Cook. I live in Chicago with my senior cat, Birdie, And I'm author and illustrator of The Way She Feels, My Life on the Borderline in Pictures and Pieces. It's a graphic memoir that was recently released, just June 29th, so like super recently, by Tin House Books. And it is an illustrated and written look at my experience living with borderline. I was first speculated to have BPD when I was 13, but I wasn't formally diagnosed until I was 23. And I had a lot of struggles during those years and I was just confused on what was going on and like why I felt so different from my friends. So the book is basically just a look into different experiences I've had and how BPD, I guess, laid the groundwork for those experiences and how like things impacted me differently than they impacted others. And my exploration of like discovering like, oh, that's what was going on and then being able to heal from there, I guess. Mm, I love that. And I want to go into deeper detail about the book later, but I, what I really want to talk about to set that up, because I think it's so important for the listeners to understand your journey of how you got to a place where you could write a book. And I say that to say, because I think both you and I can understand that we both came from a place where even having a podcast, right. Two and a half years ago for me, it was I couldn't even get out of bed, right? Oh, yeah. I I could there's no holding down a stable job, but I could keep it together on the outside, right? But I would have jumping from employment to employment. I just couldn't function. So I really loved your message and what you stood for because writing a book and doing some that takes a lot of daily commitment, right? And that is something that is really hard for those of us with BPD, I think mainly for me, because it is just a constant battle of like our inner critic is just attacking us. And so I feel like we have like imposter syndrome on steroids. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely relate to that. Yeah. And so I read this article that you did with the guardian yeah. and it was just 
the article for the listeners is called my 10 month stay at a treatment center for borderline personality disorder. And it's from May. And I was just like, I read that article and I was just like, holy shit. (laughs) You have stories like (laughs) we could do probably like seven episodes because the, I just wrote down so many questions for you, but maybe Obviously the art, the title of the article, I was like, okay, well that's how we're going in with this. Like you, (laughs) you went into residential treatment at 13. Sorry to interrupt you. No, it's a, it's an (laughs) excerpt of an essay in my book, um, that in the book is titled 10 months in Europe. But you know, when you're scrolling through articles that doesn't tell you much. And so, um, my treatment center was called law Europa and the names of the rooms were named after cities in Europe because it used to be a bed and breakfast before it was a treatment center. And so 10 months in Europe was a joke we all had. Um, I was there for 10, 10 months to the day wow. actually. And we would always make these jokes when we, people were like, well, what will you say when, you know, we were not on social media, we were shipped, you know, most of us didn't live in Utah. No one knew where a lot of us went. It wasn't something we like posted about on Facebook, like, by the way, going to treatment. So we would joke like, oh, I'm going to tell them I traveled Europe because, you know, I was staying in a room named Brussels. (laughs) I love that. That's such a good way to like cover up that you're going to, to treat me. You're like, um, I'm just going to Europe for the right. summer. It sounds so, so glamorous. And I also love the idea that it, it's kind of like a Serena Vanderwoodson type of moment. Like <laughs> off girl. It's like, where'd she go? Like, oh, boarding school. But it's like, what little do they know? I actually like went off the grid. I found it important to <laughs> holistically with myself and like the earth, you know, you Literally. could something like that. So this is a question I have for you. I want to go into more about your experience at the um, residential treatment center. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, the North suburbs, um, kind of by Northwestern, if you know, you're familiar with where that school is, but Mm -hmm. it, I grew up in like a very idyllic and sheltered town called Winneka. It's technically a village. (laughs) Um, And it's just like, everything you picture when you picture like the perfect town to grow up in, like low crime, great schools, you know, um, fireworks on 4th of July, a Santa Claus that is, you can ice skate with on Christmas, you know, all of these kind of like the American dream, white picket fence, whatever. And I was constantly feeling, well, one, I've dealt with my mental health struggles since the womb, probably. I always say that I was birthed like a sentient ball of anxiety. Like I came out and things were already like going, going poorly, you know, and I don't have memories that aren't clouded with some semblance of anxiety or sadness or this pervasive, like empty, hollow, weird feeling that I am constantly wrestling with. And so growing up, I felt really confused of like, how am I growing up in this theoretically perfect place I have this like supportive family. I have like the golden retriever, you know, the whole thing. And I feel so empty. I feel sad. I feel like I'm not whole. I don't know what's going on. And it was just so confusing for me. And then there's this like layer of guilt of like, okay, how can you have everything? Like people are not in as privileged positions and are happy. Like how can, like what's going on here? Like I'm ungrateful. I'm this, I'm that, you know? And so you know, I just, I was dealing with that. And so as my mental health, um, became more apparently a problem because 
my family in general struggles with OCD, anxiety, depression, just not only my immediate family, but like all of us, we always joke that we'll need to like put any further children in like the familial line, like on Lexpro straight out of the womb. We obviously won't like, please don't take that seriously. But like we, that's the no, joke. I, like I understand. Everyone needs a little adjuncting in this family. Yeah. Um, it didn't seem, I think, immediately apparent that my struggles were not going to be able to be managed in the way that many of my other family members are able to manage them. And that it wasn't just like, oh, silly Courtney thinks that the world is going to get her at any time. It was like, okay, Courtney's life is unlivable and she might not be here a lot longer unless we do something about it. My parents always knew that I had anxiety and really, really strong emotional reactions and a harder or longer time to return to baseline than Mm -hmm. other kids. But my mom was always like, oh, Courtney, you're a turtle without a shell. You don't have the protection from the world that others do. And it was Mm -hmm. sort of just like, oh, sensitive Courtney, you're an old soul. You're all these things. And my parents did, I think, their very best to acknowledge how I was feeling and were always very solutions oriented, which I think makes sense. But a lot of the time I started experiencing what I now can recognize as depression when I was in the third grade. Mm -hmm. And I would be, you know, like it would be obvious I was sad or upset. And my parents would ask me, ask me what's wrong. And I would say like, you know, nothing. And they, or like, I don't know. And they would just keep pressing because they were like, there has to be a reason. And so I would eventually make something up just to like get them off my back. And then they would problem solve from that fake like thing I'd say. So like once I lied, I was like, some kid told me I had a mustache. Like this literally never happened, but they still hate this kid that I supposedly called said I had a mustache. And my mom took me to Target, got we got wax strips and like we're I'm literally nine. She's like, we're we'll just take care of it. It's fine. Like it was so like I'll fix it. And the problem is is that it wasn't I I mean I probably had peach fuzz as many of us do, but like it wasn't I wasn't sad because of that or that like hadn't happened. I just like I don't know why that's what came to my mind when I was nine, but I was like, oh mustache, you know, whatever. And so I just felt like I couldn't figure out why I was sad. And so when asked what what's there to say? And so I was definitely suffering in silence more than I was able to vocalize and even show. In seventh grade, things kind of hit a sort of peak for me where things became so bad that I couldn't hide them anymore. It wasn't something that I could push to the back burner or say, oh, it was this dumb thing someone said and, you know, move on. And I began to self-harm and I was hiding it, but the school kept sending me to the nurse and asking to check me and calling my parents and you know, there were rumors and that they were true, but I was still hiding it and blah, blah, blah. And so I had kind of experimented with the end in my life thing. Mm -hmm. It was, it's hard for me to definitively be like, that was an attempt because I didn't, I, I don't know, I was, I was 13. I don't think I had any concept of really much at the time, but the way I tried to do that, like it's literally impossible, like it would not have worked. But if the intention is there, I think there is you know, obviously that matters more than the execution. And I'm obviously grateful now that I didn't have the awareness that the method I used was not going to be a success, um, which is 
actually a success when you think about it, that it didn't work. Right. I, the success, a very successful family. Yeah, exactly. And so I, um, all my friends knew what I was going through, but I was keeping it from my parents. It felt very like they won't get it, blah, blah, blah. And I had surrounded myself with people who felt similarly or were also struggling to, so we supported one another, but I think problematically we ended up teaching each other a lot of negative behaviors and sadness kind of bred sadness instead of lifting each other up, blah, blah, blah. But a friend messaged me one night on, um, like, you know, instant messenger. <laughs> My name was like manga girl two, two, four with like a U instead of an I and the girl, whatever. So a friend messaged me on instant messenger and was like, are you ready to get help? Like, are you fed up? And I think I was just so exhausted from this constant wrestling with, I'm feeling so bad that I don't think I'll make it a month, a week, whatever it is, but I'm hiding it from every adult or person who could help me. I was seeing a therapist because when my school kept calling home, my parents were like, okay, we'll put her in therapy. But I was lying to the therapist. I maintained that I wasn't self-harming. You know, I was completely living this like dual life, like with my friends versus with my family or any sort of adult figure. And I told the friend like, fine, like I can't do this anymore. And so I heard the phone ring, my home phone. I heard my mom be like, hello. And then be like, okay, all right, cool. And then she came in my room. I was already crying because I knew what was going to happen, which was that I was going to go to the hospital and mm-hmm. uh, they call my parents called my grandma. She lived nearby. She came over to babysit my sister and we headed to the emergency room and I was evaluated for just, you know, general, <laughs> whatever's going on. And um, that's actually where they first speculated. I had borderline when I was describing what I was experiencing. Um, and I remember having them tell my parents, like, we think she might have borderline, but it's not something we diagnose under 18 typically. Um, cause many kids grow out of it. And I remember my dad being like, what is, what even is that by the way? Well, who do you know that has grown out of suicidal ideation and yeah, <laughs> the prevailing theory is like, oh, well the mood swings and like changing friends or unstable sense of self, like that's being a teenager. And it's like, yep, the level that those things yeah. are being experienced is not the normal teenager experience. Um, no. but regardless, I was admitted to the, a psychiatric ward for a week and I left with the diagnosis of major depression and generalized anxiety. From there, I attended an intensive outpatient program for another five or six weeks. And then I think my parents and I both had this idea that somehow that intervention would be at the end of everything. And I guess I learned coping skills or some um, different techniques. And it put me in a position where I wasn't of immediate harm to myself, but I didn't feel any better or anything. And it just, That's the thing yeah, though, right? Like you go, you go into the hospital and I think a lot of family members think like, and I'm speaking on behalf of them. I don't know, but it's like, okay, our kid is in crisis. Like, let's get them in the hospital. That's like all we know how to do, but it's yeah. like, okay, it's, it's almost like your book that you were talking about earlier, right? Like all I knew is like, write the book, get the book done, get the kid yeah. in hospital. And then when the kid comes out of hospital, now like, what? Okay, now what? Yeah, right? exactly. Well, cause it's all about stabilizing you in the moment, keeping you from immediate harm. But then there are so many other people in 
in that position, they need to get you to the place where you're not going to immediately be a, like a harm to yourself so they yeah. can treat the next person. But it's and only it about sense. getting you out of that crisis moment. It's not about maintaining stability long-term or anything like that. And so I left and I felt the same and nothing changed. And so only a few months passed and my parents brought up the idea of me going to boarding school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was really had been like, I hate my town. I hate everyone here. Like I was so angsty and, you know, I felt like <laughs> judged by everyone. And I was like, I was known as this like scary girl because I was, I was very like seen and emo at the time. And like, you know, whatever that looks like, um, hot topic exploded on me, but parents wouldn't allow their kids to hang out with me. And like my friend group, we were all struggling and they called all the parents got together to talk about how to help the kids. And they didn't call my parents because they said I was a lost cause. Like I was the worst. And I still wonder like, what, what did I do that was deserving of like, not any compassion or like help, you know? And so I agreed to go to boarding school and I knew it had therapy, but I really don't think I had any concept of like what I was getting myself into. And I do know that had I not agreed, I would have been sent regardless. And I think it made me my life a lot easier to know that like I hadn't, you know, I had friends that were like, you know, taken in the middle of the night by people that are hired to take you so you don't run away and stuff. So they literally wake you up. It's called gooning. They wake you up in the middle of the night, like two strangers, so, like get you can pack like three things, say goodbye. Your parents are like, bye. They're like, mom and dad, what are you doing to me? Put you on a plane, you go to wilderness, which is like you hike for six weeks in the wilderness for like, you know, to process. You're not having therapy. You're just thinking. It's been like highly criticized recently, particularly with, you know, Paris Hilton coming out about her experience in treatment. Like this, it's opened this dialogue of like, is gooning okay? Is any of this okay? Whatever. And so I'm very grateful that I didn't experience that. What is, know what that is the pro gooning argument? It's that for kids that have run away and will not go to treatment on their own. It's that they can't provide themselves like a escape mm-hmm. route. Like if it's, if it's no warning in the middle of the night, you never expect it. You know, you can't run from help. It's like when you're giving your cat medication, I think the theory yeah. is like, you don't know what's good for you, but like, it's really mean. And uh. at least with a cat, they get a treat after with this. It's like, you won't see your friends or anyone. For however, you know, it's, blah, blah. And so I got sent to treatment, um, or I agreed to go and it was very quickly, not what I anticipated. And I experienced a lot of back and forth of like, you know, this is helpful, but it's also like, this is really horrifying and I want to go home, but I'm, you know, it was, it was not an easy thing, but Utah, as you asked earlier, was a huge culture shock, um, from growing up in the town that I grew up in because many of the girls I was in treatment with had very different upbringings than me in terms of incredibly traumatic and abusive backgrounds. And I continued to struggle with this, like nothing bad theoretically has ever happened to me. Like, why can't I be happy if I have all the things in place to feel whole Mm. and satisfied? Why can't I feel that way? And I used to like, I'm not religious, but I used to like wish or pray or whatever, like, please I like want something horrible to happen so I can have a reason for feeling as bad as I do. Because my theory was if I had a reason, then I could work through that thing and then I could feel better. But if I had no explanation for my sadness, as I did when I was a kid, when my parents were like, what's going on? If I didn't have something, how do you fix something that you don't know 
what's up. And this is kind of what I was saying earlier, where because I wasn't diagnosed with borderline officially until I was 23, even though I was speculated to have it for the first time at 13, I was, you know, after 10 months, I graduated from that residential treatment center. And then I, you know, not even a year later was back in inpatient. I was an outpatient. I was a frequent flyer, as I like to say, of the, you know, psychiatric hospitals of the Chicagoland area. And I was in, you know, tons of different weird experimental therapies. Like I was trying, my parents and I would try anything and things just like would maybe help for a second, but not really. And I learned to live in a way that was fine, maybe like I got through, but it wasn't good or pleasant or easy. And when I was diagnosed at 23, I was like, I feel like everything makes sense now. Like a light's been turned on. Things have clicked into place in a way that they never have previously. And I can now stop only treating the peripheral symptoms of borderline, but I can treat like the root cause. And in addressing the root cause, I can actually start feeling better because I was always in this like cleanup mode of like, oh, I have to clean up how I split on someone and ruined a relationship or I went to four high schools because I kept transferring. I was like, I hate it here. Everyone hates me. I got to go. Like I literally transferred all the time. I could not stay in one place. Um, Everyone was my enemy or my best friend. You know, it was just like this classic wavering, splitting black and white, terrible mess. And I didn't, I couldn't even see the patterns I was falling into. I was always the victim. I always felt Mm -hmm. wronged. And when I was diagnosed, I was like, I think a lot of times I was hurt and I actually projected something onto someone. And suddenly it was like, it was like I had glasses on, they were taken off and I was like, oh, and then I could stop those feelings from manifesting in those terrible ways, or at least mitigate that or be able to vocalize it, ask for help, use coping mechanisms, blah, blah, Mm. blah. And prior to that, like, how can you change something that you don't know exists? I, I couldn't. And so, you know, it was just think like, diagnosis, I, I, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, what if I was diagnosed at 13? Like how different would have things been if I was able to actually start addressing those problems then, instead of letting things manifest and grow and fester for 10 years, you know, it sucks to think like, how could their lives be different? How could my life, how could your, you know, whatever. There's such a hesitance to formally diagnose anyone with BPD, right? Even now it's like, I've had multiple mental health professionals tell me, I'm textbook BPD, but they're like, but you're just not, you're not self-harming, right? Because just because I'm not cutting myself and just because I'm not currently making any suicidal threats, they're like, I don't know if you meet the criteria, you know, so maybe I'm, and you don't want that on your medical records. Like I I've gotten think, that yep, a million times. You're, like, you're it not will follow you. It's too big. Like, and I've had, and I get it in some way because I've had like when I moved cities for grad school, I had to approach eight therapists before someone said, yeah, I will treat someone with BPD. People are just like, I won't. Like it, it does follow you in a way that there's so much stigma, even in the mental health professional community that I understand, I guess, some semblance of hesitation. But at the same time, like if you're not enabling me to have the language to understand what is going on inside and know that it's not just me, but like other people experience this. This is a pattern that happens. This isn't like, I'm not crazy. I'm not abnormal. I'm just going through something that others go through. And there's like a way to treat it. People have like, you know, not 
had awful lives with this. Like it, it, it's such a, it's like a gatekeeping of happiness or health or ability to change in an effort to like not harm you. It actually is like very harmful in my opinion. Yes. And- Why have a diagnosis if you're too scared to give it to people? All mental health conditions suck. Depression sucks, but you don't hear yeah. anyone saying, I'm really hesitant to give you a diagnosis for depression because people could judge you for that. There's something about borderline personality disorder, how we're called borderlines, right? Yeah. Like you see it online and there's threads upon threads of borderline abuse and how to spot a borderline. Borderline personality disorder is a framework of patterns that once Mm -hmm. you realize that you've been operating under that framework of patterns and it's just something you did to protect yourself when you were little, it's no longer effective as an adult. And so it's like when I had that realization and I looked at BPD like that, instantly I felt like, I can recover from this. Like, yeah. And I, I started listening to neuroscientists that said, you know, your brain is plastic. You can change. My brain can change. I'm no longer in those scary situations. Doesn't it suck to have to distrust a mental health professional? It's like when you're yeah. sitting there with a psychiatrist and they're telling you you're bipolar or this, I'll just give you this medication. And you're kind of going, I don't know if this is right. Yeah. It's, I was working with a psychiatrist in grad school and I have an essay in my book called Ode to the Psychiatrist I Hate Who Gives Me Good Drugs. And I Hmm. now actually really strongly dislike the drug that at the time I felt was immensely helpful to me, but can you say what drug that is? Yeah. I mean, so I had always been on SSRIs. I still take Lexapro. It has been the most um, consistently helpful thing in mitigating some semblance of baseline anxiety and depression in my life. Mm -hmm. But I was experiencing a ton of mood lability and feeling just like I was constantly in a state of either like euphoria or like perfection or like everything is awful and I want to die and I like nothing is good. And I felt like I never existed in just a fine, content, normal state. And I was like, and it wasn't like, oh, I had two weeks of this, two weeks of that. It was like multiple times a day. I was swinging between this, the state and it was so exhausting and anything could set me off. And sometimes it was like, you know, not getting a text and I had a reason, but sometimes it was like, I would literally be hanging out and all of a sudden it was like a cloud came over and everything was terrible. And hmm. so I was put on Abilify, um, which is a mood stabilizer. It's technically an antipsychotic. And I had, I struggled with an eating disorder when I was in middle school. And I still have a lot of problems with body dysmorphia. And I also have OCD that manifests in this it's hard to describe this like feeling of not right and that something is wrong that I need to correct. And that most often exhibits in my body where I'll feel like a hair or a bump or something that I feel isn't right. And I need to correct it via like pulling out my hair, picking at my skin. I have what is called dermatilla omania and trichotilla omania, which is when you pick or pull at your hair, pick your scanner, blah, blah. And so I've dealt with a lot of like things revolving around my body. And so I had told my psychiatrist at the time who I was like assigned via my grad program type of thing. I didn't really have it. I didn't select her. It was just like who was at the health clinic. And I had told her like, I will not 
go on a medication that has a side effect of weight gains, I know that that will more negatively influence my mental health than it would help. And she was like, of course, I'd never put you on something like that. And then put me on a Bilify, which has like a, like a median weight gain of 50 pounds. I gained 50 pounds in a year and I did not change my eating habits or working out. Like literally nothing changed. It didn't matter what I did. I felt so out of control with my body, but weirdly enough, I did feel that my, you know, my emotions were less swinging. Like they weren't this pendulum. And I would go into her office and I would say, Hey, I like, I'm gaining weight. I'm feeling very bad about myself. It is negatively impacting my mood. Can we address it? And she'd be like, no, like, I actually think this is good for you. And I would get on the scale and she would see that I'd gained weight and go, hmm, but it's helping. So we'll leave it there. And I was so frustrated and I just like sucked it up and was like, fine, I guess this, I guess like my exchange for having more manageable moods is feeling really awful about myself. And it's not that I necessarily think that weight gain is inherently bad or anything like that. It was that I was not in control of my body. I felt like I wasn't able to make my own choices. And that was so, I felt like I had this lack of autonomy there. And so when I graduated, I got a new psychiatrist who I expressed this to, and she was like, let's go off the Abilify. I found that I think I had grown a lot emotionally during that time and my moods weren't swinging as rapidly or as severely. And when they did, I was more able to manage it without that medication. And so it was no longer necessary. I also felt more in control of my body because I wasn't stuck in this, but I also began working with a therapist who her whole premise of her treatment was on neuroplasticity and reef Mm. like training your brain. And so like, I think that combined with feeling more in control of myself, of my body, more like at peace with myself, things like that, I was able to actually reframe everything. But I felt that initially it was like this psychiatrist saw that I had borderline and was like, you need to be on this intervention and you're somehow incapable of making a decision or expressing this isn't working because I'm so fearful of you or what you might do if you're off this, you know, this medication that keeps you within this more stable baseline that like, it's too much of a risk to take you off. So I won't listen to your concerns. And if she had the concern that I would you know, be a danger to myself if I wasn't on some sort of mood stabilizing medication, you know, perhaps we could have discussed a different one that didn't have those. Yes. But I just, I felt like I was infantilized kind of, and that my diagnosis was overshadowing any of my own actual experience. It was like the preconceived notion of like what it is to be borderline, what that entails, what that looks like was more important to her than my own like lived experience in front of her, which was. That's the definition of invalidating, right? Like, which is just further traumatizing us when we go through those situations. That's why I opened up my first YouTube video with that. It's like the first thing my psychiatrist said to me was like, trust me, you don't, you don't want borderline. You're not, you're not one of those. Like I see you, like you're a normal person. You're not borderline. It strikes me as this, like, oh, other girls are crazy, but I'm a Mm -hmm. cool girl. It's Mm -hmm. this, it's this internalized hate or, um, in like the example I just gave, like this internalized misogyny or here, it's like this internalized ableism or demonization of a specific disorder where it's like, you don't want to be like those other people. And like, I've even had friends who are like talking badly about someone. They'll be like, 
you know, and like, she's like crazy. She is borderline. And then they'll kind of look at me and they're like, but not like your borderline. Like, it's different. And exactly. I'm like, you're telling me that you're calling someone crazy because they're exhibiting symptoms that are characteristic of being borderline, but somehow I'm different because I'm, I've managed them in a different way because I've had access to treatment and like privilege to have that treatment. But it's not that I'm somehow like better than them because of that. Like, I I don't, I I shouldn't, I don't think anyone should fault someone for not having the language or experience or treatment or whatever to get to the place I'm in. Because my hope is that if I share my story, other people can get to this place. And I'm not saying it's like easy or without a ton of work or that it's necessarily like the treatment options I've had will be accessible to everyone in terms of finances or whatever. But I don't, I don't think it's impossible for people to seek a better life and be able to no. like create that for themselves if they, you know, work hard and find resources and blah, blah, blah. And so I hate this idea that like, oh, it's different. They're different than you. It's like, they're just at a different state. If given the opportunity to be like, Hey, do you want to feel happier, better, more stable? Of course or do you want to live like this? Like, who's going to be like, no, let's keep this going. When you have BPD, we aren't these people that are going out into the world and just raging on random people. We are emotional live wires that, yeah. that are trying to keep it together all day. And so the people that usually see the, us when we like lose our shit after trying so hard to keep it together at like our corporate jobs at our, you know, at school with our friends, like, and that's yeah. why casual acquaintances will be the one where you'll share that you struggle with your mental health. And they're like, I can't even imagine you getting mad. And you're like, and you're like, I just, I always feel it's really tough when I see people engaging with discourse or liking something or online or saying things like that about borderline that are this very like stigmatized demonized view because I I know that not everything is about me or a reflection of how others view me but when I see people making judgments like sweeping assumptions about people with borderline I do think well now I know how you feel about me or you would if I wasn't bending to, you know, work in this specific way that, um, you know, that is acceptable or whatever it is. And Mm. I know that like, I have been seen as quote unquote crazy by people, particularly romantic partners, whether that is an actual partner or a moment fleeting night (laughs) partner, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But I have certainly been someone that people are like, you know, you're too much or you're a lot, or you come off too strong or these words that, you know, are all alluding to the fact that like you feel too much or you're too invested Mm -hmm. in this thing that normal, whatever that means, people like don't feel that way towards. And like, you know, I've had friends before I was able to really figure out what was going on with me and work on it. They'd be like, you know, you are crazy with like people you like, like you're crazy with boys or, you know, girls or whoever I was pursuing. And I was like, Yes. Uh, and I don't understand how other people don't feel this way as well. I relate so hard to that. It's like, like, it's so exhausting to have to mitigate though. This, like you already hate yourself because you know, you're reacting in a way that is inappropriate or too much, or the a level of reaction doesn't match the circumstance. I already hate myself for this. Like, please don't make me hate myself more maybe (laughs) by like insinuating that what I'm doing is awful. Like I'm so aware that I wish I was not doing this. And like, thankfully, you know, I found ways to not give into those feelings, but it, it sucks when even your friends are like, yeah, those, that was a little, 
you know, at least they're honest, but at the same time, like, please be gentle. It, it's true. <laughs> I am and but also a sensitive I feel, gal. Yes. No, I relate to that. I think I, I talked, touched on this in one of my, my, literally my last episode on uh, sex and intimacy that I uploaded yesterday. And it, I think that a lot of times people with borderline personality disorder, it's like we either completely withdraw, but if we're in our friend group, I was always kind of like the butt of the joke. I was like the lovable mess. And it almost like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point, Mm -hmm. because if everyone sees you as that, you're like, well, I'll just give them what they want. I'll just continue this. Or that's how I am. And give the people what they want. Yeah. Right. You're like, okay, well, if that's what you, if that, yeah, if that's what you see me as, like, I'll show you that, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of times, at least for me, being the butt of the joke or having those jokes is because they, I think friends have felt they are acceptable because I have given the illusion that they are. Because if I'm self-deprecating and saying, oh, I know I'm, you know, I know I'm crazy or I know I'm obsessed or I know this is weird or whatever it is, it almost gives permission to be like, yeah, that, that's a cool thing to say. Or like Courtney thinks it's funny. So if we say it, it's funny. And yeah. I think, you know, obviously others aren't mind readers. And if they can't know, unless you communicate, people can't assume or know what's going on in your head. But a lot of times I think I've said things because I want someone to say, no, you're not, you know, yeah. it's like, if you say like, oh, I look bad in this outfit maybe you want someone to be like, you look good. But at the same time, like if maybe it's not the most flattering thing and a, yeah. a real friend will be like, yeah, I don't know about that shirt on you. If you're saying I'm cray cray with like romantic romantic pursuits and all your friends like yeah you are you're literally insane lol love you you're like oh okay thank you for confirming like I kind of thought maybe I was testing the waters here for you to be like no it's fine but like I have I've come to the conclusion that I was right and then it sucks because you're like okay but I don't know where to go from here like okay now I know I'm whatever crazy is but what is what now like what 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 am I supposed to do about it that how do I change Brings me to my next question I had for you. It's like the perfect segue. In your book, there's a drawing of a hand and it's like reaching out for the word normal. Like it's like this this pink hand that's just like stretching out and it just seems so out of reach, but so close at the same time. And I just thought that that particular drawing was so poignant. It made me think of myself, like how often I have thought, I just want to be like a normal person. And so I want to know like yeah. where where your head was at when you made that drawing and like, and maybe how do you think you saw normal when you were a teenager versus how are you seeing normal now? You know, when I was in treatment, I viewed anyone outside of treatment as normal, anyone that was able to have money or own a bag or be able to shave that wasn't on Tuesdays and Thursdays supervised only with an electric razor or, um, you know, people who were allowed to go to the bathroom after they ate, if they had to go instead of waiting 30 minutes, but if it was before 30 minutes, you had to have a staff listen to you count to ensure you weren't like throwing up your food or ending your life or whatever it was. Like I viewed anyone that didn't have these restrictions that were put in place to keep us safe. It did suck to have no freedom whatsoever. We were only allowed a certain amount of, of each item of clothes. And every day when we put them on, 
we had like, they had inventory of all our clothes. And so the staff marked down what we were wearing so that if we ran away, they could tell the police, like, you know, they're wearing this. Our socks and our underwear were marked down. You know, we weren't allowed to wear thongs. Like we had literally every single thing we did was watched and monitored and written down and whatever it was. And so I viewed anyone that wasn't in that situation as normal. Like you could have been living the most unlivable, horrific experience. But if you weren't being controlled in that way, to me, it was like, you're good. But that wasn't true because when I left treatment and I was still facing these issues, I was like, I'm clearly still different from everyone else in some way. Like I always felt this distance from the way that I felt and perceived the world or felt like I would be in a situation where my friends and I would all have the same experience, but the way that it impacted me would just be at such a different level because I was constantly feeling this othered perspective and like weirdness, I would blame it on my situation. I was always like, I haven't found the right place in the world or my, my group, my friends, my whatever. And so, you know, I transferred high schools four times because it was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I, that just, that one wasn't a fit. I was like Goldilocks, you know, I'm like, I just got to like find the right one. There's no just right because there's that thing where it's like, wherever you go, there you are. And I was the thing that was like the problem in that it was a me thing. It wasn't the external things, but I couldn't recognize that. And so I think for me, this idea of normalcy was just, it was so foreign that I almost didn't even understand it. Cause at one time it was this like people who have freedom and are not in treatment, but then it became the idea of normal was just people who didn't feel out of place all the time, maybe, or Mm. didn't react so strongly to things that other people had more minor reactions towards, or people who were able to have a bad situation happen and not want to leave the country or their high school <laughs> or their like leave life in general. As I've grown older and like one of the goals I guess I've had for my book and putting it out there is this idea that I am normal in the way that everyone else is. Like I am, I like sleep and I like, I like my cat so much and I love seeing a dog on the street and petting them and I go to the mail post office. I don't know why I said like that. You know, I love, like the, I, mail. I, I love the mail post office. <laughs> like I, I say, I hate Amazon. And then I go on and I buy something because it was cheaper. You know, like I am a person in the way that everyone is a person. And though my lived experience has differed from other people's and is definitely not typical of many people, that doesn't mean that I'm like some monster or scary weirdo or whatever it is. And so I guess I've reframed this idea of normal in that we're all just doing our best. And what that looks like is different for different people. Ultimately, we're human. And I think that something that, you know, when you've said, like, I hate when people say borderlines, it's that it, it compresses or flattens an experience that can't be definitively one thing. I hate when people are like, oh, all borderlines do this or all borderlines do that. What do you mean? I mean, like, aside from like sleeping and breathing and eating and like shitting, like, sure. But like, we might have commonalities in the way that we fit under an umbrella where if there's nine DSM diag, like, you know, things and you have to have, I think it's five of them to be diagnosed mm-hmm. if, okay, so sure. We have some semblance of these five things, but the way they manifest is different for everyone. The way yes. that I experience them is different. I yes. like, we are all just people who are experiencing things differently. And so to say everyone does the same thing or everyone who has BPD is abusive or everyone yes. does this makes no sense. 
And it's, or you may experience, you also may experience the side effects or the symptoms differently, depending on the stage of your life that you're at, right? You said you struggled with self-harm, right? Maybe we don't struggle with with self-harm. You maybe don't physically self-harm anymore. I don't use sex as self-harm anymore, but now I certainly like have done really impulsive things with my hair or gotten like a really oh, impulsive yeah. like I, piercing. You just switch addiction things, you know? Yeah. Like for me, I, I have wrestled recently with this idea that I, for a long time, thought like I haven't cut since I was 15. And I was like, wow, it's been 10 years. And then I recently realized I was like, okay, well, if I'm like picking at my skin and pulling at my hair, oftentimes with tweezers, which was my like preferred cutting method, I was like, just cause it's a different action with it. And I, if I'm still bleeding and I'm still hurting myself, like, oh dear, in college, I used sex as self-harm all the time. Okay. So don't hate me. We're going to stop right here because I got to split this interview up into two episodes cause it's just too damn long and too damn good. So if you're interested in hearing the next part of our conversation, tune in to part two of my interview with Courtney on the next episode. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine and that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media, and keep up with all the new updates, you can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode, so don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.